Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. There is no magic money tree we can shake to give everyone what they want. Former Prime Minister Theresa May once snapped back at a nurse asking for a pay rise. The magic money tree trope has been used by all stripes of politicians to rebuff rivals and public alike. Then the pandemic happened, and oh gosh darn it, wouldn't you know it, the magic money tree turns out to have been there in the backyard of Downing Street all along. The new excuse in vogue is that one can't shake it forever. The tree must be repaid. To paraphrase Mary Meller, the state moved from being the main creator of public money back to supplicant housewife. My guest today is a professor of economics at Bard College, a student of the great Hyman Minsky. His current research focuses on providing a critique of orthodox monetary theory and policy and the development of an alternative approach. He has been published extensively and has written a plethora of books on the subject. I am very proud and excited to welcome to the podcast Professor Randall Ray. Thanks. Good to be here. Professor Ray, um, I want you to make me look very clever indeed to my next dinner party guests. Explain (laughs) modern monetary theory to me as briefly and as simply as you can. Okay, well, it focuses on um, how sovereign governments actually spend and what are the true constraints on its spending. It argues that although we hear politicians and sometimes economists make the analogy of a government's budgeting to the budget of a household, we argue that this is completely misleading. The government is the issuer of our currency. The household is the user of our currency. And that makes really all the difference in the world. Mm. Now, the, the, the state used to be the main money creator. Um, then through the liberalization of financial markets, that focus shifted very dramatically. The vast majority of new money today, some say as much as 95%, is now created by private institutions. Why did this happen? Why did we effectively privatize money creation? If we go back just um, 150 years ago, which isn't that long, Mm. Um, it was very obvious how the government spent. Because when a government wanted to spend, it would mint coin, or in the case of Britain, uh, they would put little hash marks on tally sticks. uh, Or a little bit later, they would print up paper currency. Mm. And then they would spend it. It, it. So it was very, very obvious. Where did the currency come from? It comes from the government, and it gets into the economy because the government is paying for something. Uh, And then we could use that currency to pay our taxes. Mm. It was very clear uh, what this relation between the currency issuer and the currency user was, Mm. okay? And that all got um, hidden uh, because we now have two degrees of separation, between the currency issuer and the currency user. Uh, One degree of separation is that we uh, invented these things called central banks. And central banks act as the banker for the treasury. 
So all payments today go through the central bank. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And then the, the second degree of separation is that central banks operate uh, through private banks. And so you, let's say you are a social security recipient, your bank will credit your demand deposit on the first of the month with the payment. And so it's private money. Your bank receives a credit from the central bank to its reserves, which is sort of like the deposit account of your private bank at the central Mm. bank. So all government spending takes this form today. And it's not obvious that this payment was made on the Treasury's behalf. The Treasury places an order to the central bank to credit bank reserves, and then the banks that receive those reserves credit deposit accounts. Hmm. And when we tax, all of this is just reversed. Your deposit account is debited. Your bank's reserves are debited by the central Hmm. bank. That process of that shift towards private finance institutions really became on steroids in the 70s and 80s. Um, Were there benefits to that shift? I mean, even if you don't agree with them or are critical, which I know you are, how was it sold to people at the time is what I'm trying to get to. So for a very long time, we've had this view that finance is a scarce resource. And I don't want to get too deeply into economic theory, uh, but it's based on this loanable funds uh, approach in economics in which um, saving is viewed as the source of the funds that finance investment. The idea is you put your savings into a bank and then your bank through some sort of a a magical, well, money tree is the term (laughs) you were using. The bank has the magic money tree. It expands that deposit and uh, it can make um, loans to finance investment. Mm-hmm. And we really want to promote this. So let's free the banks. Let's remove regulations. Let's let them supervise themselves and create all sorts of new financial products because mm-hmm. this is very good because it will lead to more investment. So, you know, that's the theory behind it. The reality is quite a bit different because bankers are very clever and they can figure out ways to make profits that don't involve any investment in real stuff in the economy. You know, the term that's used is they basically financialize the economy in ways that don't really promote uh, true economic growth. Mm -hmm. Yes. In your most recent book, A Great Leap Forward, you argue that, for instance, on home ownership, that liberalization led to a sort of a broadening of the base for a short time, but then ultimately it has increased inequality, basically, because home ownership became the main depository of wealth for people. So you have effective all this money trapped there. Um, Can I ask you practically, how could we switch back to public money creation 
again. You want to move from A to B. What I'm asking is practically how do we get to B? First, let me say that, you know, we don't really need to change this, um, the relationship among the treasury, the central bank, and private banks. And, and I think that this is something that a lot of people don't understand uh, about MMT. We're not proposing that we need to change the uh, procedures that are now used hmm. that allow the treasury to spend. It's pretty efficient. It's pretty foolproof. And it allows the treasury always to spend up to the budget that either Congress or Parliament, I don't know much about the British system. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know a lot about the American. Parliament. Yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> okay, so we don't need to change that. What we need to do is change our understanding of this. So our problem really is not that we have a barrier to treasury spending. What we have is in Congress, this belief that the government is just like a household and it's, it could run out of money or it, it could find itself uh, faced with an attack by bond vigilantes who would refuse to lend to the government. And that is what constrains us. So we have to be very careful and not spend too much. This is all completely wrong. That is our barrier. It's not really the procedure. Now, whether or not uh, we need to constrain banks in their private activities, that's a different matter. And on that, I think we need to do that. But sure. you see, that's different from the government finance. Yes, absolutely. Have central banks always uh, bought guilt or bonds or I don't know what the system is in the state in exchange right. for quantitative easing or or did that start to happen at, at some point? Why did we start attaching money creation to a form of debt? Yeah. Uh, you know, when the, the Fed is our central bank, when the Fed was founded in 1913, I mean, you guys had one at the end of the uh, 17th century. <laughs> we, we never had a central bank. Our Fed really was not supposed to buy government bonds at all. That gets changed when you go into major wars. So World War I, we relaxed that. And we said, oh, Fed, hey, please buy a lot of government bonds. World War II, same thing. So over the whole post-war period, the Fed has held government bonds. And it's become a normal practice. I, I think when the Bank of England was founded, the purpose of the Bank of England from the very beginning was to hold the debt of the crown because uh, for reasons we probably shouldn't get into, people didn't trust the crown. Yes. <laughs> so, so anyway, they created the Bank of England to, to hold the debt. So I think it's pretty normal, you know, and certainly today it is normal. QE is not normal. QE was a very strange policy because normally the central bank would hold just enough government bonds to put reserves into the banking system that banks needed in order to clear checks. Yeah. You would just put the right amount in to make the system work efficiently. With QE, the idea is you go from, say, 50 billion of reserves to eventually, I think we hit 9 trillion of reserves. Okay. 
The banks do not need nine trillion of reserves in order to clear checks with each other. It's it was a very yes, that's silly, been one big check, right? <laughs> yeah. it, it was a very silly idea. Uh, central bankers they had reached uh, the zero interest bound, so they had lowered their target interest rate to zero, and economies still were not recovering, and treasuries were not given authority to spend enough to pull us out of the global financial crisis. And mm-hmm. so the central bank said, well, you know, we can't go any lower with, uh, with our interest rates, but we could increase reserves. This is why they use the term quantity. And somehow that would make banks want to lend and borrowers want to borrow and run out and spend and get us out of a deep recession. Never worked. Uh, we said it would never work. Hmm. Excuse me for oversimplifying again. Um, this is meant to be a plain explainer. Um, labor is effectively the key resource in in MMT, and, and full employment is one of the goals. In the UK right now, we have constricted labor supply with our idiot Brexit, and we're getting quite near full employment, but this is identified by the Bank of England as a key risk. It is seen as both adding to inflation and constricting growth. Um, How do you respond to that? Why is one school of thought seeing full employment as a great thing and one school of thought seeing it as a as a danger if you go back to the early post-war period uh, both in uh, britain and in the united states the view was that full employment means that there are several job offers for every person who's unemployed okay Mm -hmm. that was the definition it's called the beverage definition and it was accepted by economists so in other words You want more openings than there are people looking for work. And that is considered to be a good thing. All right. So employers would always hire more if they could find more workers. But in the 60s, that uh, shifted to the notion that, well, no, actually what you want is far fewer openings than there are unemployed because that keeps labor really docile and it keeps wages down, and it is how we fight inflation. Hmm. So rather than viewing unemployment as a problem, unemployment began to be viewed as a solution. So we want unemployment because it keeps inflation down. It's relaxed a little bit, but uh, not a lot. So in the United States, again, I know the U.S. better, You know, now the complaint is, that we have unfilled positions. Yeah. Uh, but from the old view in the post-war period, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing because it encourages innovation, investment in labor-saving technology. Efficiency, higher productivity, etc. Right, right. And, you know, the reason why economic growth, most of the rich countries, has been so slow for the past 30 years And the reason is because there's no incentive to invest if labor is so cheap and plentiful. Why would you want labor-saving technology? So basically, industry is addicted to cheap labor. Yes. Um, Yeah. Um, Isn't there a risk, um, 
just because we are now in 2022, okay, and there are employers around like, let's say, Amazon or Apple with very deep pockets, isn't there a risk that in a full employment scenario, what would end up happening is that the competitors with the deepest pockets will just corner the skills they need, destroying competition effectively? Well, uh, you know, certain kinds of labor are scarce. Uh, and again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. We, we do have a problem with monopoly power. It's not just, you know, being able to, to bid away particular skills, uh, mm-hmm. but in, in pricing power. So what we have seen is that the markups, that is the pricing over costs, have been steadily rising for 30 years uh, right. to about triple what they were in, ni- in 1980, I believe. And then in over the past year, they have just exploded. Firms with pricing power decided, and, and we know this because they announce it at their company meetings. Uh, they say, you know, consumers are not going to punish us too much if we increase the price because they know pr- that costs have gone up and prices are going up and inflation is up. And so we can get away with really high markups. So let's do it. So I, yes. I think it, it goes way beyond the labor. It is a big problem. And, um, you know, I think something does need to be done about too much market power. So in, in your ideal model, what limits the creation of new money or does nothing limit the creation of new money? What the private sector has done as it financializes uh, virtually every part of our economy. You talked about houses. The way I view what they did is they financialized your house. Mm. Your house and your monthly mortgage payment is the basis for many multiples of financial assets and bets on whether you're going to be able to make those payments or not. So that's what I mean by financializing. It's layering debt on top of debt on top of debt. And there appears to be no limit. uh, And that is a big problem. Hmm. In terms of the government, um, what you want to do is, as much as possible, have the government do things that are productive. You know, increase our living standards uh, taking into account environmental sustainability and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the limit to the amount of money the government creates in its spending uh, should be determined by fulfilling uh, you know, the public interest, decent housing, decent um, health care and education uh, and recreational activities, all of those sorts of things. And in order to do those things, the government needs access to resources, including especially labor, as you said, our most important resource is labor. And so the limit to what the government can do is determined by the limit to the amount of resources we can move to the public purpose. And if we find you know, that, that we're short resources, uh, and these are important public interest, say, you know, saving the planet <laughs> would be a fairly important public interest, I think, then what you will need to do is move some resources out of private use. 
So that's the purpose of taxes. Mm. What about the Eurozone problem? Uh, What do we do with countries who have uh, devolved, is the wrong word, I mean the opposite, maybe pooled their ability to create fiat currency to a supranational level? How does MMT work for them? You know, you can think of the, um, the dollar union as a currency union. In the United States, we have 50 states, we have a dollar union. Okay, so it's a monetary union. In Europe, they could have done the same thing, and it would have worked perfectly fine. But instead, what they did was they said, okay, we're going to have a euro union, but we're not going to have anything like the equivalent of Washington, D.C. We're going to let each one of you individual members go it alone. It would be like letting Alabama or uh, Georgia go it alone with no funding from Washington. It would be a disaster in the U.S., and it was a disaster in Europe. We started saying this uh, in the 90s, uh, even before the, the euro was officially launched. Um, and when we said it, you know, everyone looked at us like we're crazy. I think almost everybody within the euro uh, area now realizes what the problem was. So now, you know, we're speaking to the choir. They just don't know how to do it politically. Randall, I often sense in conversations a sort of generalized aversion to MMT um, that stems in part from the sort of dumbing down of economics that happened during the Reagan-Thatcher era when everything was household budgets and maxed out credit cards. Um, and, And almost a Puritan, maybe even a Protestant, streak running through it that glorifies sort of scarcity and thrift as somehow character building. (laughs) How do we get over that understanding in people that uh, a nation's economics, as if they're, you know, just you going to the grocer? There's this fallacy of composition that every one of us should limit our spending to our income and therefore that should be true at the aggregate level too which would mean no growth (laughs) which Mm. is not a good not a good situation i think there also is a great mistrust in our elected representatives and you know paul samuelson who wrote the textbook the generations used gave this interview to mark blaug in 1974 Mm. in which he said that you know when, when we make this analogy that the government is like the household and should, be, should budget the same, uh, this is a fairy tale. This is what we tell people to scare them so that they will behave responsibly. Uh, we, know, we all know it's false, Samuelson is implying, hmm. uh, but we, we, we really don't trust uh, Congress or Parliament because yeah. if they knew the truth, they would spend like crazy. Now, I think this view is completely false. Uh, over the past 25 years of um, you know, developing and, and talking about MMT, we, we meet with politicians, and many of them get on board. They say, yes, we understand that. And we also know they are scared to death of inflation. You know, Economically, inflation actually is not that bad until it gets uh, even higher than it is now, but politically. It is a huge issue. Do you worry 
the correlation of money creation via stimulus and furlough schemes during the pandemic, followed by very high inflation, is that going to become the next, you know, Weimar Republic printing money? Will it, will it be used as a stick with which to beat MMT advocates for decades to come? Well, it's already being used as a stick, yes. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> um, it's very hard to know what's going to happen, but it has gone on longer than the Fed thought it would. It has gone on longer than I thought it would. And the war... Uh, in Ukraine is compounding our problem, and co- the fact that COVID is not going away is compounding our problem. So it's going to continue longer yeah. than we thought, but it, it is going to go away yeah. down the road. I, I'll ask you, I have loads more to talk to you about, but we're, we're out of time. I'll ask you one last question, but it's a biggie. Is modern economics fit for purpose? I mean, why is economic orthodoxy so resistant to change. Yes, it is a complete mess. <laughs> so our central banks use dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models that have no banks and no money in mm. them mm. to try to forecast uh, where the economy is going. Now think about this. A central bank uses a model that has no central banks or banks <laughs> or money to try to understand our economy. Well, when you put it like that. (laughs) (laughs) Professor Randall Ray, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You are a very bright bulb in a very dark room, if I may say so. Okay, thanks a lot. Remember, there's a new Bunker Pod every day, the full panel on Tuesdays, your Start the Week Bulletin on Mondays, your Culture Supplement on Saturdays, and daily interviews every other day. So don't forget to subscribe, review, and rate us. You can also support us directly on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. You get lots of benefits in return. For every complex problem, there's a solution that is simple, neat, and wrong, Mencken once quipped. But is that wisdom, or is it wit? The axiomatic belief that a simple and neat solution could never apply to a complex problem, that the road to betterment must always involve some suffering, seems to me as randomly dogmatic as any. And subscribing to it might lead one to reject solutions worth exploring simply because they seem simple or neat. It's not like orthodox economics has delivered utopia. So maybe, like all scientists, they should be well served by opening their minds to the unorthodox. This is Alex Andreo in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker was presented by Alex Andreev. The producers are Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. Audio production came from me, Robin Leeburn. And the Bunker theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>